In just a moment, you're going to think that you are hearing blatant plagiarism, and that's because you're going to be hearing blatant plagiarism. Not, not once, but at least a couple of times. <laughs> Someone thought that was really funny. <laughs> Appreciate that. Uh, Pastor Robbins, uh, just a week ago, Sunday morning, he was expounding the text of 1 Peter 4, 7. But the end of all things is at hand, therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. And it, it was for him an appropriate occasion to speak to, the, to, to what we believe concerning eschatology, what we believe concerning the, the return of Christ. And in that sermon, he pointed out several essential elements of that. The four particular components he mentioned that when we think of the end of all things, what has to be included for believers are these four things, the return of Christ in glory. The resurrection of the body is rejoining with the souls of the dead of every person who has ever lived. The final judgment of all people and the inauguration of the eternal state. And Pastor Robbins pointed out that believing these things is true. is The unified position of Christians for good reason. It's found throughout the New Testament. 318 times he mentioned that we can find these doctrines uh, elicited from the text of Scripture. In every, every book of the New Testament, every epistle includes reference to this, but for three, he mentioned Galatians, 2nd and 3rd John. I'm going to take his word for it on all those things. And it's true as well that if you were to go back, even in 1 Thessalonians, to the earlier portion of this book, that you would, you would find Paul has already begun to talk about these things. Look back at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19, just a, a couple of paragraphs, a couple of chapters away from where we're looking tonight. Paul asked this question to this congregation that he is celebrating for how they've received the preaching of the word, they've received the gospel and embraced it. And part of what he celebrates is this. He says in 1 Thessalonians 2.19, For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? Paul has already told them that he is anticipating the return of Christ. And with the return of Christ, he's expecting them to be alongside him at that time, to, to be rejoicing together with them as they come into the presence of the Lord. He's celebrating what's true about them as they had become Christ's possession when they had believed the word that was preached. They accepted the free offer of the gospel. Their identity was changed as, long, as well as their destiny. Their future was made certain by the work of Christ. And so Paul could remind them about their future, and as he does in, in our chapter tonight, chapter 4 and verse 13 and following, he is going to remind them about the specific future that belongs to them and what they can think about these things. He has confidence in the promise of God. He believes what has been spoken throughout the Old and the New Testaments concerning these things, and he wants them to know and to confidently know and embrace these things, that which is shared among all the churches. It's right for us to accept these things as well. It's appropriate. But, and it's part of, of who we are, our identity as Christians. Think through, like again, I think we, this was mentioned before, but this is part of our confession in the Apostles' Creed. I believe the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And from there he shall come to judge the quick or the living and the dead. We further testify, I believe in the resurrection of the body, the life everlasting. The Nicene Creed affirms this as well. The third day rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father and he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. It's not the ancient confessions that, that, that make this part of what we believe but certainly our reformed confessions everywhere pick up on this doctrine and expound it and nowhere more so than our own confession of faith. The last two chapters, not one, two chapters 
speak to these things. Chapter 32 of the confession of the state of men after death and of the resurrection of the dead. And chapter 33 of the last judgment. But not only is it found there in those two chapters, but you can find it in, by my count, as many as 10 other chapters, you will find this is embedded in the doctrine of what we believe about the things of God and those last things of our world and of our eternal destiny. Larger catechism, 80 through 90, those questions speak to this issue. And the shorter catechism, 37 and 38. And what, what it speaks to, the fact that we have all these multiple testimonies and indications of these things, is that this is an abiding part of who we are. This is something that is deeply impressed in our conscience, is not only that we have a future death that awaits us, but that death is not the end of us. That there is much that follows, and indeed much more follows what happens in this life. And so this evening, when you come to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, we want to listen to the Apostle Paul as he begins to instruct this church. And I want to pray in particular for the blessing of the Spirit as we go into this. Let's, let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we thank you that you are a God who hears when we pray. That you are a God who is willing and able to help us because you are our Father. And so Lord, remember your children this evening that in remembering us, your Spirit might be sent to us, that we would be able to understand the things that are written in your law, to embrace them as that which belongs to us. And to be encouraged by them that we might have hope. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let me briefly give you an outline of this, of this chapter and what Paul's doing here. Verse 13, we have Paul expressing his desire. Paul's, Paul's desire is to encourage this congregation towards a knowledge that's appropriate for believers. In verse 14, Paul makes an assertion. His assertion is, is that God is going to bring up the dead with Christ when he returns. Verses 15 through 17, Paul provides an explanation. He's going to give the order of the events of these, these last things, particularly as it concerns this church. And it's going to include in verse 18 with Paul's command. And that command is to comfort one another. So Paul's desire, Paul's assertion, Paul's explanation, and Paul's command. Looking again at verse 13, Paul, Paul there gives an indication of what he wants to communicate to the church. He says, I do not want you to be ignorant to be unknowing, to be unaware of these truths that belong to you. And so Paul is going to proceed to give them information which is vital for them to know as believers. He's, he's not going to speak to everything that he might. There's more he could speak to. He's not going to speak to the dating of these things. If you jump ahead to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, you get more of a sense of the wind, but principally that the wind is going to be a sudden surprise when that future day comes. He's also not going to speak to the final judgment in this passage. Certainly he testifies to that elsewhere, he testifies to that in chapter 5, and we'll come to that eventually, that there is no escape from this judgment. And he's also, in this passage, he's not speaking to final destiny. He's not talking about the eternal wrath or salvation. Again, you can find those in the next chapter in a multitude of other places in Scripture. Paul is not ever in question in speaking about those things, but here he's, he has a more limited concern. Again, he wants to move them towards knowledge, a particular knowledge that does something for them. He says, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. He is trying to stop them not from grieving, but from the kind of hopeless grieving that characterizes the world in which they live. Remember, these are, these are this is a Gentile church. There are very few Jews that are part of this congregation at this point because 
It's largely been rejected in the synagogue, but it's been the Gentiles who have heard and received the gospel. And, and in their believing, they're embracing a whole new set of ideas, and it's, it's causing a radical divorce from the life that they've lived. They are being rejected by the culture. Indeed, they're being persecuted by the culture because it's made such a change in their life. And this is yet one more area there's going to be a difference. And yet, in this case, it's going to be an immediate benefit that they should feel differently in those situations in which grief is appropriate. They feel differently because of knowledge. And that knowledge is one that gives them hope. Notice that Paul, even there, he, he gives, and in his way of speaking, he, he uses a euphemism. He says, concerning those who have fallen asleep. And it's, a, it's the most appropriate euphemism, not because Paul is, is embarrassed about talking about death or dying. He does that in a multitude of places. That's certainly something he's comfortable addressing. But in this case, he's referring to death as sleeping. And Why? Well, you know why? Because when you go to sleep at night, you have this expectation you're going to wake up in the morning. I mean, you might not, but pretty much you lay your head down the pillow and there's this expectation. Some of you even struggle with this when you lay down at night because you begin to thinking of all the things that you need to do the next day and you can't fall asleep. Uh, I welcome you into that company of people. Paul knows that there is something more for them to believe and it should be impressed upon them. Even the way they talk about death is that we refer to it as sleep because it is in fact temporary. It's not the end of all things. As Paul goes on in verse 14, he, he further makes an assertion to them. Why is it that they can grieve, not as those who have no hope? He says in verse 14, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Paul's not making a conditional statement here. He's not saying if you believe that you will go to heaven. Again, this is something that he says elsewhere. But Paul is giving us sort of a logical, um, he's making a logical argument for us that we ought to be able to embrace. He's saying, since we believe in the death and resurrection of Christ, then we should also believe that God will bring with Christ those who presently sleep. He's saying, you know this, that you believe in the resurrection and you believe in the resurrection of Christ with certainty. And, and they should believe that because it was very much a part of Paul's message to them. It's Paul's message everywhere he goes. Let me give you a few examples of how frequently Paul speaks to the resurrection and how much he ties things to the resurrection of Christ. Romans 4.25, Paul says, It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. Romans 6, 4, therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Romans 4, 19, for to this end Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. Paul speaks to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6, 14, and God both raised up the Lord and will raise us up by his power. 1 Corinthians 15, 4. We believe that he was buried and that he was rose again the third day according to the scriptures. 2 Corinthians 4.14 Knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. 2 Corinthians 5.15 He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and rose again. And I could go on and on and on. Something like 60 different times and just in Paul's epistles alone where he's going to speak to the resurrection of Christ and use that to inform the thinking of believers. 
Nowhere more so than in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says to, to that congregation in Corinth, he says, he is staking everything on the resurrection of Christ. He writes to them, 1 Corinthians 15, 14, and if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life we only have hoped in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Paul is saying he has no job. He has, he has wasted everything and endured persecution for, for no reason at all. If in fact Christ is not raised from the dead. But he does believe that, and that's why he's given himself to the gospel mission. That's why he endures the, the persecution, the suffering that he does. That's why he puts himself in these precarious situations and endures so much privation compared to what he might have had and enjoyed had he just remained a happy Pharisee doing their will. Paul believes it, and he expects them to believe it as well, and he knows that they do believe it because it's what's made them a church, is that they believe that Christ died and that he rose again from the dead. And they do believe this, but there's a nagging question for them. And, and, and commentators, they, they, they try to figure out what exactly is Paul talking about this in this way? What, what's, what's his concern here? And I, and I think one of the obvious things that's the concern of the Thessalonians who have heard of the resurrection of Christ and who have believed that it's true, they've accepted because the spirits worked in their hearts and caused them to believe this, that Christ was in fact raised, is that they look around and they say, but what about my friends? Christ was raised on the third day. His body is not still in the ground. The stone was rolled away. But what about my friends? Their stones are still in place covering up the sepulcher. They're, they're, they're still six feet underground. We have not seen their bodies walking around and their, and their health restored. What about them? And it's a good question, and that becomes the, the, the question that allows Paul to make this explanation. Look at verses 15 through 70. Paul wants to give a detailed, even a step-by-step -step explanation that puts everything into its place. He wants them to know there is a plan, there is a design by God. He says in verse 15, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Christ has revealed to him in some way, either from his earthly ministry and the shared testimony that's in the Gospels or a shared teaching of the early church or even the direct revelation that Christ gave to the Apostle Paul himself, which would seem to be the case here, that there, there is a definitive plan from God that's going to be executed in God's time. And that execution of that plan means first the raising of those who are dead. It includes four successive events. First, there is the coming or the arrival of the Lord. The incarnate Lord Jesus is going to come from that mysterious abode, the, holy of, the heavenly holy of holies where he currently resides. He's going to come there from his priestly work and come down now in a glorified body, but in a body. And he's going to descend. He's going to re-enter his creation. And he is re-entering his creation. He's going to appear in the heavens such that he will be seen by all. And that's going to be accompanied by a second feature. You see this in verse 16. It's going to be accompanied his descent with a shout and with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. 
that first term there was shout. It's better translated. The ESV does a, a good job here. It says it's, he's going to descend from heaven with the cry of command. It's not just a noise for noise sake. It's just not, not just shouting out, but he's directing. It's an imperial decree. It's, it's like a battle cry that's meant to, to move people. And the, the, the movement that it's, it's intended to give is to wake people from the dead, to cause them to rise up from their graves. It's also the voice of an archangel, just as you heard in Daniel chapter 12. At that time, it says in verse 1, Michael shall stand up, the archangel, and he will be heard. It goes on, it says that many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And it's also the trumpet of God. This is, of course, a fixed feature of prophecy. Every time you hear, not every time, but just about every time that you hear spoken in the Old Testament prophets of the day of the Lord, you also hear of the trumpet. Joel 2.1 says, Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand. Prophet Isaiah chapter 27, verse 13. So it shall be in that day the great trumpet will be blown. They will come who are about to perish in the land of Assyria. And they who are outcast in the land of Egypt and shall worship the Lord in the holy mount of Jerusalem. Zechariah 9, 14. Then the Lord will be seen over them and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will blow the trumpet. And it says, the Lord God will save them in that day as the flock of his people, for they shall be like jewels of a crown, like a banner over his land. Of course, that, that message prevails, and we expect Paul to know that and to remind them of this. They don't know the Old Testament. He's going to tell them, this is what to expect a trumpet. And of course, this is what Christ himself taught in his ministry, Matthew 24, 31. He says, and he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Again, Paul, in that famous and familiar and comforting passage, 1 Corinthians 15, 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. When you hear this sound, and every single person in this room, even those in utero right now, will hear this sound. It will be a sound unlike any you have ever heard. For all those times that you have ever accused your children of being loud, you will be embarrassed. This is a sound that will drown out every other sound. This is the sound that once and for all literally wakes the dead. This is not like a heavy-handed organist or a clumsy husband putting away dishes. I have trouble there. My wife reminds me frequently, try a little harder. This is not reckless children. This is not a marching band that, that comes by that overwhelms you. This is going to cast a shadow on every other loudness that you have ever heard in your life. This trumpet and the shouts that, that made Jericho fall will not compare. The, 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 the smashing the jars and the shout of, of, of Gideon's army against the Midianites, nothing compared to this. Even what the Lord does on Mount Sinai. Exodus 19, we hear about the, the smoke and the, and the thunder and the trumpet and the voice of God, even that was limited in its scope. Those who heard it were in an immediate area, but this is one that's going to transcend all of those. No one will be outside its range. No one can block it out. There will be nowhere to hide from this sound. By this voice, this noise, everyone from every resting place and from every hiding place will be drawn in the presence of the great king. 
And because this command is from a God who is a God of order and not confusion, it will be that the dead in Christ shall rise first. As Paul writes in verse 16, they're given the priority that Christ may magnify his glory even in that moment. Because all the living who are standing at the time in which he comes, they're going to watch the graves break open. They're going to see bodies materialize out of the ground, standing up in the grave. The the people long, long past and recently deceased all together will be standing up and the living will be watching and astounded at the work of Christ. What happens when he speaks? They will appear enfleshed and decently clothed and bodied with, with, with bodies that will not ever again be destroyed and they will be rejoined with their eternal souls, some of which have been in the presence of Christ and it will be glorious. And then the living will be further astounded as they're watching what the Lord is doing there. They will find themselves lifted off the ground. Their feet will begin to separate and they will leave the earth being drawn up to heaven where Christ is. Paul says in verse 17, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So whether from within the grave or the ground, everyone is going to be elevated and brought towards Christ. Paul is saying all of this. He's giving them all this this explanation because he's speaking to them as a pastor and he loves them. As, As one commentator said of this, his purpose in declaring these things is not predictive. This is not a formula to to try and make sense of the day as if you could react on that day in any other way other than the way that God called you to react when he calls the dead back to life to stand up and he calls all up towards heaven. There's no decision to be made at that point. You're entirely passive Now what he's doing is he's speaking here. His purpose is pastoral. It's not predictive. He is telling them this is how you can have comfort. By believing the power of Christ that he has to work to raise the dead. It's all going to be sorted out and no one is going to be left out. And Paul tells them, verse 18, what he wants them to do with this. He says, therefore comfort one another with these words. The Reformed theologian Herman Bovink once said, eschatology is Christology. There is nothing more Christ-centered in all of our doctrines than Christology. The last things are always and ultimately about Christ. His vindication, his exaltation, his glorification, his dominion, his judgment, his, his wrath, and his provision for his people. And it's all about the work that he has done and the work that he is doing. We're meant to believe that and to be comforted by that. We're meant to obey what Paul says. So how how do we obey what Paul says? How do we apply these words? Comfort one another with these words. Well, let let me give you several things that you can do. First off, you can learn these words. That reminder, thus we shall always be with the Lord is incredibly comforting. And to know that, to be able to speak that to someone else is incredibly valuable. Likewise, you might learn Matthew 24, 31, where he says, He will send his angels with a great sound of the trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other, reminding people no one is left out. John 14, when Christ says, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also, and where I go you know, and the way you know. John 14, 18, when he says, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. What Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, for as in Adam all die, even so all in Christ, all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ 
the first fruits, afterwards those who are Christ at his coming, and then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and authority and power. These are words to know, to believe. They are, they are spread throughout your New Testament, even throughout your Old Testament, to remind you of the truth about you, something that abides in your conscience, is you are looking for something ahead. Not merely dying, not an end of these days, but the future days which come when Christ raises us. It's appropriate not only to, to learn these words, but to learn the meaning of these words. Again, I would direct you back to those last two chapters, the confession. You want to be an expert in eschatology? There are so many books you shouldn't read. You could just read this. And in, in, in 15 minutes, you will know better and understand better than, than the world of people out there and wanting to talk about these things. Again, go back to those larger questions, larger catechism questions, 86 to 90. You will be an eschatological expert just from those things, and it will be a comfort to you. Again, what else do we do with these? We literally use these words. These are for use, and they're for use here in the body of Christ. It's not for use out there with the world. It doesn't belong to everybody, but for the people in this room who have embraced Christ, this is meant to be their comfort, for them to know that this promise belongs to them, that this order of things is, is intended to explain what's going to happen to them. It is a perfect plan guaranteed to be worked out because it's God's plan for his people. This should be used by you as encouragement for the dying. It's, it should be used by you at consolation at funerals. It should be used when you're thinking about loved ones who are long departed that you come back and you bring this into the conversation. We shall always be with the Lord. And of course, we can remember that other command of the Apostle Paul when he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Dan Leach, we need to sing Jesus lives and so shall I. Day of judgment, day of wonders for all the saints, which is going to be sung at my funeral, Carrie. Nod your head. You heard her. The God of Abram prays. The sands of time are sinking. Lo, he comes with clouds descending. These songs belong to us, and they're meant to encourage one another as we believingly sing the words of these hymns. We sing them to each other and remind each other of the truth. So teaching and admonishing one another with grace in our hearts and telling the world as well. And then there's one other thought that we might have come to bear this evening, and that's just thinking, and given the season in which we are, we are worshiping, that we have begun to, to recognize in some way or another the advent, the, the appearing of Christ, the incarnation. And, and this text is a reminder for us that there are, in fact, two, two advents. And this is where, again, I, I blatantly plagiarized Carl earlier. Now I'm going to blatantly plagiarize Charles Spurgeon. I could do much worse than to plagiarize those two people. Spurgeon reminds us that there are two advents of Christ. Let me summarize a few of his thoughts. He says, he says first off, there are similarities between these two advents, the coming at, at the incarnation and the coming again at, at the end of all things. He says, both comings are personal. They, they are individual and in the flesh comings into the world. Fully God and fully man on both occasions. Both advents are, are, are comings according to the promise of God. The first coming was, was, was foretold and it was also fulfilled. And the second coming has been foretold, as you've heard, in multiple accounts. And by God's promise, it is going to be literally, physically, and spiritually fulfilled at God's, in God's good timing. 
Another similarity is both comings are, are unexpected by the mass of people. Certainly we will touch on this as, as we read various passages in the New Testament about, about the coming of Christ, that he was not recognized, that he was overlooked. But there were a few loyal, faithful few who were looking for his appearing and were rewarded with it. So it will be at that last day that there will be those who overlook, who, who don't care, who aren't thinking about it and are going to be surprised. But there are also going to be a faithful few who are remembering and anticipating, longing for that day. Both comings are at one and the same time blessings to the people of God, but stones of stumbling and rocks of offense to those who do not embrace Christ, who do not believe upon him. And of course, that gives Spurgeon occasion to remind us of the the great differences between the two advents. I'll summarize again in part. He says, the first and the first, the son of God came as a feeble infant laid in a manger in a corruptible and mortal body, a man of sorrows acquainted with griefs. Living a life of indignity, dying a death of humility. At his second coming, he's going to come exalted and victorious. The indomitable king of kings and the lord of lords who will sit on a throne before whom every man and woman and child, every servant and every king are going to bow down. And then listen as Spurgeon in his, his own words speaks to the differences. He says, the difference appears once more in this. He will come again for a very different purpose. He came the first time with, I delight to do thy will, O God. He comes a second time to claim the reward and to divide the spoil with the strong. He came the first time with a sin offering. That offering having been once made, there is no more sacrifice for sin. He comes the second time to administer righteousness. He was righteous at his first coming, but it was the righteousness of allegiance. He shall be righteous at his second coming with the righteousness of supremacy. He came to endure the penalty. He comes to procure the reward. He came to serve. He comes to rule. He came to open wide the door of grace. He comes to shut the door. He comes not to redeem, but to judge. Not to save, but to pronounce the sentence. Not to weep while he invites, but to smile while he rewards. Not to tremble in heart while he proclaims grace, but to make others tremble while he proclaims their doom. O Jesu, how great the difference between thy first and thy second advent. We can add this to what Spurgeon says, at the first advent Christ came to stand on the earth where man is, but at the last advent man will be lifted up from the earth and drawn near to the Son of God where he is. And we'll be reminded the prince of the power of the air, the the evil one will no longer have that domain. It will no longer be his abode because the king of glory has come in. And you will stand before him humbled even as when a father lifts up his child off the ground and whether the child wants to be there or not, he will be lifted up. You will be humbled before him even in your standing before him in the air because he has you where he wants you. So I ask you this, brothers and sisters, do you desire to be with Christ where he is? Paul's counsel, his comfort is only for those who want to be with Christ. For those who are afraid of being apart from Christ, they ask this question, what about the dead? And they receive that comfort. Are you longing for Christ? Well, let Spurgeon have the last word. He says, Long not for Christ's coming, if thou lovest him not. For the day of the Lord will be unto thee darkness and not light. 
Ask not for the world's end. Say not, come quickly, for his coming will be thy destruction. His advent will be the coming of thine eternal horror. God, grant us to love the Savior and put our trust in him. Then, but not till then, we may say, come quickly, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for the coming of Christ. And oh Lord, we do confess now that we long for it. We anticipate that great day when all things will be made right and all those who are now dead will live again. Being called up by you, by your command. And there will be no disobedience on that day. Everyone will do exactly as you say and praise God for those of us who love you and who have believed your promises, who know Christ dying for sinners and rising again from the dead. Lord, we praise you for that hope that we have, not only for us, but for those who have gone before us. Comfort us with these words.